I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Understanding the physical relationship of cells and how they interact can provide new understanding of diseases and help improve drug development and clinical treatment decisions. Nuclei uses its AI-powered spatial biology platform to transform pathology data into insights. The digital assays it develops enhances drug development, supports treatment decisions, and helps stratify patients to improve care. We spoke to Ken Bloom, head of pathology for Nuclei, about the company's AI spatial biology platform, how it works, and the potential it has to advance precision medicine. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here today. We're going to talk about spatial biology, nuclei, and how it's using artificial intelligence to transform drug development and clinical treatment decisions by gaining new insights through pathology data. I think we should begin with spatial biology. For listeners not familiar with this, can you explain what it is, what types of information is gathered? Yeah, I think the the best analogy I use for people that aren't familiar with the term uh, is Google Maps. You know, in the old days, we would have a map that would tell us how to get from A to B, uh, and you could print out directions. But nowadays, we can look at something on our computer screen in front of us, and we can visualize not just our route, but all of the associated conditions with that. Where are our restaurants? Where are our hotels? What is the traffic pattern? We can now make more informed decisions on how to get from A to B and sometimes even discover new routes that we otherwise wouldn't have recognized. That holds true with spatial biology as well. I'm a practicing pathologist. I've been doing so for about 38 years. And so one of my main jobs is looking at tissue that's removed from the biopsy, from the uh, body, either through biopsy or, or a surgical excision of a tumor, for example. And we look at that tissue under a microscope and help classify uh, the disease entity. Uh, you know, in a tumor, we would classify the tumor, come up with some histologic features that aid clinicians in deciding on what the right therapy choices should be. What spatial biology does is extend that, whereby we can now structure every cell that's present on that slide and determine all sorts of mathematical relationships between them that wouldn't have been intuitively obvious just looking at that tissue under a microscope. So very much like the same concept of looking at that paper map versus now a Google Maps, where I now have all sorts of other features that were previously hidden that I can now interrogate. And the purpose of that is to really dive in and find insights that were otherwise missed which would lead to better outcomes for patients. 
I think of maps being two-dimensional. Is that true in the case of digital pathology? And, and does that make a difference? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, of course, the world of biology is three-dimensional. Uh, but it's interesting when we get a sample that's excised from the body and we look at it, it, it starts out in three dimensions, uh, obviously. But what we wind up doing to look at it under the microscope is we cut a very thin section of it, usually three, four or five microns in thickness. So very, very thin piece that we stain and we look at that. So we're really missing that third dimension when we look at tissue under a microscope. But that third dimension is critically important. So one of the things that we're going to be able to do with spatial biology in the future is add that third dimension to the analysis, which is currently missing. Do you get to wear those really cool movie glasses? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, but but one day uh, I'm sure that that's going to, going to be the standard way that we review tissue. You mentioned you've been a pathologist for 38 years. I, I imagine with digital pathology using images rather than slides, there's been a, an enormous change in how a pathologist practices. How has digital biology changed the way pathologists can read images? And how does it change what the pathologist can see or do? So, so, so it's a fantastic question. Surprisingly, it hasn't done much yet. So I told you that I've been practicing for about 38 years. What I didn't tell you is that uh, during my residency, I helped develop the original telepathology system and had uh, the company that, that we spun out held the original patents on telepathology. So I'm one of the rare pathologists that's actually been doing this my entire career. So I've trained on a microscope, but I've been doing digital pathology really since the inception and have used it extensively throughout my career. And one of the, the sad points of that, or what, you know, one of the things that, that I'm really disappointed that we haven't aggressively adopted is expanding out all of the new things that we can do once a slide is digitized. So for the last, really, I'd say two decades, 15 years to 20 years, uh, digital pathology has been pretty common, in, but for very selected areas. So for example, when looking at prognostic markers in breast cancer, things like estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2 new protein assessment. There have been digital platforms available to aid the pathologist in the interpretation of those stains for a long time, again, going back to the early 2000s. And those tools are really important, but what they're what I call augmentation tools. So they help pathologists get an important job done more reproducibly and hopefully more accurately uh, over time. Where we're really going with spatial biology is to provide insights beyond just simple augmentation. So we wanna be able to identify things that we were previously overlooking that would really improve patient outcome. So as good as we are at looking under the microscope and classifying disease, as 
you know, when you go to the doctor and you get something, there is no therapy that they give you that they say this is going to be 100% effective. And unfortunately for patients with metastatic cancer, frequently we talk about quality of life and how long we might be able to extend your life. But until recently, we really haven't been talking about curing you of your cancer. And that's been the massive change. The massive change is the development of new therapies that have really made it essential that we move into this world of spatial biology. So I argue when I started this 38 years ago, really the therapies for cancer patients were pretty limited, right? It was, you had surgery. And then after surgery, really chemotherapy was just starting. So they might've talked to you about chemotherapy options and maybe some radiation therapy options. And the chemotherapy options that were given to patients at the time were pretty limited. They were very toxic agents. They just killed any dividing cells. People would lose their hair, get severe GI upset, and the whole litany of, of, of bad side effects that we all remember from chemotherapy, sort of that bad connotation with chemotherapy. In the early 2000s, we had a transformation to targeted therapies where we started developing drugs, uh, you know, the anti-hormonal therapies and anti-HER2 therapies in breast cancer were sort of the, the poster child for that. And a whole new era of what we call precision medicine developed. And precision medicine was really the idea that we now had therapies that were targeted to specific attributes on tumor cells so that we could minimize side effects and we could extend efficacy to patients, meaning patients would have a higher response rate and they would get a better quality of life for significantly longer periods of time. But unfortunately, they didn't really alter the overall survival of patients. So a fantastic step forward, uh, you know, certainly less side effects with therapies, better outcome with therapies in terms of longer periods of time living a healthier lifestyle. But in the end, the, the basically did not improve the overall survival of the patients, just the quality of their life. In the last five years or so, we've seen the emergence now of two new types of cancer therapies. One is immunotherapy, which really isn't about killing the tumor cells with, with drugs. It's really about using those drugs to re-engage the patient's own immune system to target the patient's tumor and kill it through your own natural defenses. And there's a whole litany of approaches now with immunotherapy that are being developed and expanded. The second category are what we call antibody drug conjugates. And the idea behind these sorts of therapies is you use the target to get the drug of choice, and there's many different options there, directly to the tumor, bypassing other areas so that you don't see side effects. So you get better efficacy and fewer side effects. And we're seeing some increased survival advantages with some of these therapies as well. So now that we have drugs that potentially can improve patient survival, it really becomes incumbent on pathologists to say, 
wow, what sort of techniques can we develop to better identify these patients? Because as good as these therapies are, the long-term survival benefits are still only recognized by a small percentage of patients overall. So the goal for pathologists is can we examine this tissue and can we better identify patients who are going to get that long-term survival? And more importantly, can we identify new combinations of therapy that would get patients that weren't getting that extended survival and putting them in the category of extended life? And so that's really the genesis of spatial biology. Now that we've got new therapies, we need new ways of analyzing tissue. When you layer AI on on top of digital images, what, what becomes possible? What information can you now gather and analyze that you couldn't before? And how much data is derived from a single image? So these are evolving questions. So when we look at a slide, at, when I look at a slide as a pathologist today, right, really what I see under the microscope are basic cell types. So I can see things, for example, like tumor cells and stromal cells and inflammatory cells. And just based on my eyeball, I can classify them broadly into those sorts of groups. As I, as we can apply newer techniques, things like spatial transcriptomic signatures, things like multiplex immunofluorescence, we recognize that some of the cells that I identify by my eyeball under the microscope actually represent many different cell types and cell states when I look at them with increased granularity. So when I look at the messenger RNAs that they're producing, when I look at more detailed proteomic analysis of what proteins they're expressing and where they're expressing, I now recognize that there isn't just a lymphocyte, there's B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes and in T lymphocytes, there's uh, you know, CD8 expressing lymphocytes and CD4 expressing lymphocytes, so-called helper lymphocytes and cytotoxic lymphocytes, memory variants of each of those. So I can get memory B cells and memory T cells. I can get regulatory T cells. And so now I recognize that what looked simple to me before under the microscope is now actually a much more complicated process. There's many, many more cell types and there's many different cell cell states. So even though cell types aren't static, they can change and evolve over time. And so this is where AI comes in. So there's two main uses of AI. One use of AI is, can I take a look at that slide that I still look at under the microscope? And can I, through AI, dissect out the different cell types and different cell states just from the standard hematoxylin and eosin stain that a pathologist would generally review under the microscope? So that is a huge endeavor. And that's in large part where AI has been focused right now in pathology is defining, structuring a slide and defining the individual cell components that make up that slide. With machine learning, is your AI system able to detect things like cancer 
in ways we may not even understand. And, and to what extent did this become a black box? Do we know the data that's being gathered and what the AI system is using to make the determinations it makes? Yeah. So, you know, so it should back up a little bit. So there's two types of approaches to uh, AI in general when looking at a pathology slide. So the first AI that was done was using what we call convoluted neural networks. Uh, You see this in all sorts of other AI applications. And that's what you described as a black box sort of AI. And the meaning of that would be, if I wanted to predict something, for example, like cancer, what I would do is I would just submit to this convoluted neural network thousands of pathology slides where outcome was indicated. I wouldn't structure the slide at all. I would just give it the slide and say, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Just take that digitized image. And the only thing I'm going to tell you about these images are this was cancer and this wasn't cancer, right? And what you get out of that is the neural network will learn and will come up with a prediction for a new slide that will say, I think this is cancer or I think this isn't cancer, right? And the problem with the black box is you won't know why, right? You'll just know I submitted a slide and I got some outcome. There's a fundamental problem with that. There was a lot published in this over the last 10 years. But to me, as, as a, you know, a more expert pathologist, I would look at these models and say the models can only be as good as what they were trained on. So there are tumors that you would show to a dozen different pathologists and we would all be in 100% agreement on exactly how that tumor should be classified. But unfortunately, there are cases where you get a tumor that's a bit more unusual or doesn't have classic features And in those cases, pathologists might disagree on what the overall assessment of that tumor should be. So there's always a question in black box learning, how good was the truth that you provided, right? And so you've got two main problems. One is you gave an input and you don't really understand how it synthesized its conclusion. And two, you can only be as good in your training as you were with the class with the training set that you had developed. And unfortunately, there's a lot that we don't know yet about biology. And so that makes that training set quite variable. There's one other problem with that in the world of pathology, and that's moving from your training set to real world data. Because unfortunately, the way that pathology slides are prepared and stained aren't standardized from lab to lab, and they're not standardized even within the lab from year to year, which means that you get variability. So when you get these black box models and you're not sure exactly how it arrived at its conclusions, if you slightly change the input that you're now providing, meaning a slightly different slide stained in a different way, there's no way to guarantee that you're going to get the outcome that you want. So at Nuclei, while occasionally we will use this sort of model, we stay away from that. And we use what are called white box models. 
And in white box models, it means that we want to understand everything that the AI is doing, right? There's no guesswork involved. So we use AI to help us do two things. One is to help us classify the cells. And you can classify cells, in my mind, in basically three main ways. One way is to use pathologist annotation of the standard H&E slide, meaning you show me the slide that I'm used to seeing. And as a pathologist, I point out and I say, here are all the tumor cells and here are all the lymphocytes and here are all the stromal cells. And whatever different cell types I can identify, I put that into my convoluted neural network and it will learn from me what is a tumor cell and what is a stromal cell and what is an inflammatory cell. And it can feed that back to me and show me what it did so that I can look at it and go, I agree with everything that you did or my model needs more, more inputs. I need to increase the accuracy of this model. It's something that can be visualized by us so we know the veracity of that model because we're looking at its results in real time. From that structuring of those cell types, then we apply standard test, uh, statistical and mathematical techniques to extract dozens and thousands of features that wouldn't be intuitively obvious to your eyeball. So those are things like densities of cells, proximity of cells, things that are, they're just too many, you know, there's, there's millions of cells on a slide. And so for us to understand those interrelationships of the million cells is just too much for a human to do. And so statistically, we can plot all of these different variables. Now that you've got these different variables, we can use AI techniques and other techniques to compare that to outcome. So now we can say, for example, here's a new drug that came on the market. There, let's say it's not on the market yet. Let's say they're evaluating it in a clinical trial. So this new drug gets developed. There's a couple of different phases of drug development. The first phase would be testing it in humans to make sure it's safe and figuring out what the right dosage is. But then they'll move into what they call phase two, where they'll want to, well, they'll want to understand, does the drug show efficacy? They haven't decided yet what necessarily which patient group they're going to give it to or how patients should be selected. They're just trying to understand how does this drug really work? And so they might give it to a set of patients. Some patients will get an unbelievable response to the drug. Some patients might not get any response to the drug. And then there'll be some patients that are in between. And so where you can use our technology is to get tissue slides from those that I'm going to call them the super responders that did fantastic with the drug and some slides from patients who were rapid progressors, meaning the drug didn't do anything for them. Their, their tumor just continued to proceed on. And we can look now at all of these tens of thousands of spatial characteristics and say, which characteristics were different between the group that responded and the group that didn't. And that will lend insight into how the drug is working and into better criteria for selecting maybe as they move the drug forward into a definitive clinical trial, 
which patients should be tested and which cancers might be more amenable to the therapy than others. What's been done to validate the approach that you're using? So it's being validated in real time right now. So these techniques are relatively new. There's some nuances in the technique. So as you can imagine, when I say that we're using AI to extract features from a slide, I've already described that there's granularity in these features. So some AI can, some things that AI does really well are things that pathologists do really well, like separate out inflammatory cells and tumor cells. Some things that pathologists don't do as well is quantify things and quantify relationships between things. And as we move into these immunotherapy drugs, where we're trying to modify the immune system, which is quite complex, we really need to understand all of the compo different components of the immune response and their relationship to tumor cells and to blood vessels. So we need to understand how drugs can migrate into the tumor, how they interact with the immune system to change the composition of the immune system, and how all of those relate to the geometry of the tumor to where the tumor is located in proximity to all of those other variables. So it can get, so it can get quite complex. How about in terms of accuracy, what's known about that? So that's another really super important topic. So again, the AI is only as good as to what you train against. So when we train against things like, you know, tumor, lymphocytes, stromal cells, the accuracy rates are quite high, over 90%. When we look at things that are less well-defined by pathologist's eyeball and have state changes, even when we look at them with transcriptomics and with proteomics, those are things like dendritic cells and macrophages. The accuracy level moves down to the 75 to 80% range. But we're working on techniques, especially as we now move into more advanced proteomics, multiplex immunofluorescence, uh, spatial transcriptomics, where we can better identify those cell types and cell states, the predictive models get much better. So if I use that as my predicate for machine learning, then I can move up my accuracy over 90% for those cell types as well. And in terms of the benefits, uh, is there anything to be said about the impact this has on cost or speed or, or accuracy? Yeah, so there's many different ways that these techniques can be used. So I'm going to break them down into the two major ones for drug development. So one is much earlier in the process, as I sort of described before, it's really important that a pharma understands exactly how their drug works. And so adding these spatial components, especially as we move into immunotherapies, really helps them much better understand the mechanism of action, which will let them design a better phase three trial, definitive trial that will go for approval from the FDA. So it allows them to design that that trial better. 
select patients better and have a higher likelihood of getting a good drug to market faster. So that's really important for patients because you want to get good therapies and have more options available to you that could potentially lead to a cure. In the short term, though, the way that this is used, so that that's that's really the evolving space that can really, I think, transform drug development. Where we're really focused on spatial biology today is enhancing the clinical trial itself. So when you're looking at the clinical trial itself, there's a couple of features that become really important. One, you have to identify patients to enroll in the clinical trial. And the clinical trial might involve some complex testing or identification of targets that take time, effort, and money to do. And so patients elect not, patients and physicians together elect not to even uh, send their sample for potential enrollment in a clinical trial. So let's say that they have a target that is present in let's say 5% of the population and the definitive test to enroll the patient in the clinical trial uh, you know, might take two weeks to get a result back. Some clinicians are weary to discuss that option with the patient because it delays their therapy for two weeks. And then they've only got a 5% chance of actually being in, you know, having the marker to enroll in the clinical trial. And then, of course, they could always be randomized to a placebo group. So they look at all of those things and they go, it's a discussion not worth having. Where we're looking to use the AI is we don't have to be perfect. That's all that we have to be able to do is look at the slide and say, you know, this patient doesn't have a 5% of chance of having that marker for enrollment. They have at least a 50% chance or a 90% chance. And that changes the equation in the oncologist discussion because now they say, wait a minute, now you have... That, you know, your tumor has a feature that is likely going to give you an option for a clinical trial. So it changes that discussion point. That means more patients could be enrolled in the clinical trial faster, which speeds up that, that entire running of the clinical trial, which again gets good drugs to patients much quicker and also will help some of those patients that had no options get enrolled in clinical trials that they otherwise would have missed out on. In terms of using your platform, what's the workflow like and, and how does it differ from a, a traditional workflow, if at all? So really the only change to the traditional workflow is digitizing the pathology slide. And that's already ongoing in pathology workflows in probably about 15% of pathology laboratories overall. So it's still not the majority yet, still the minority, but the workflow is quite simple. It goes from tissue, which gets processed into what they call a paraffin embedded block, formalin fixed paraffin embedded block. That block gets cut and the pathology slide gets made off of that cut. The only additional step is taking that pathology slide and scanning it in a whole slide scanner. That only takes about a minute to two minutes a slide. So it's not a very cumbersome piece added to the workflow. It's not like you're adding days or hours, you're actually just adding minutes into a workflow. 
that image is then uploaded into the cloud, uh, many different ways of doing that, many different clouds. And within that secure environment that we upload the slide is where our algorithms would structure, analyze, and deconvolute that slide into meaningful insights for the clinician. There are several market areas that Nuclei is targeting. You've touched on, on those to some extent, but what's the overview of, of the markets you're targeting and, and the opportunities you see there? We're focused, so there's two big markets for Nuclei. There's a, what we'll call pharma research market, and that's where we're predominantly focused today. And then there's a clinical market that I think will be the future, right? That's where the action will be. We're just a little bit early for that market today. So we're focusing predominantly on pharma, and there's two levels of that. So one I'll call translational pharma slash academic research. And that's to really help us understand why certain drugs work very effectively in some patients and not effectively in other patients, especially when we've already analyzed the tumor and we've recognized that they have the components that we expect will respond to this particular drug. So again, for targeted therapies, if the tumor has the target, we would really like to understand why some patients respond markably well, while other patients don't respond at all, even though they both have the target. And so it goes beyond what our understanding is today. It's not just that we did a molecular analysis or a stain, we found the target, we need to go a little bit deeper. And that's what I'll call true, true science. We're trying to truly understand the mechanism of action of a drug and define better hypotheses and better tests to really refine that. Because if we could truly understand which patients respond to certain drugs and which ones don't, we could avoid the unnecessary therapy and expense in patients who are going to get no response and better identify those patients, make sure we never miss a patient that's going to get a maximal response to a specific therapy. So that's really critically important. And we believe that spatial biology holds a missing key. Because even though we've had next generation sequencing where we're doing really deep insight into the genomics of a tumor, that still hasn't been able to define for us which patients are going to get maximal benefit and which patients are going to get no benefit. What it defines for us is a group of patients who might get benefit. So that's good. We can say if you don't have the target, don't give the therapy. But if you have the target, we're still not refined enough within that target space to go who benefits and who doesn't. And so that's one approach. And as we move into immunotherapy, where it's really the interaction of your entire immune system engaging with a tumor, that's a much more complicated question than just do you have a target or not a target. So we believe that spatial biology is holds the missing link that's going to allow us to identify non-responders and super-responders within identifiable classes. The second thing, which is really, really important today, is for the drugs that we have, 
identifying patients who might benefit for those drugs. And so I'm going to take an example of lung cancer for a great example. So lung cancer, back when I started, was just known as lung cancer. And then maybe 10 years into you know, my training, we started subdividing the tumors into small cell and non-small cell. That was actually at the beginning of my training. And then we worried about the non-small cell, whether they were squamous cancers or adenocarcinomas. But nowadays with targeted therapy, we really want to know what targets are expressed. And within lung cancer, there are many targets that are expressed, but at very, very low percentages of tumors. Those are things like ALK translocations, RET translocations, uh, et cetera, EGFR mutations, BRAF mutations, HER2 mutations. And so there's a bunch of things that are expressed in very low frequency. So the guidelines to, uh, to treat a lung cancer patient today in the United States would say that each lung cancer patient should undergo next generation sequencing to look for the myriad of different targets so that the patient can be placed on the best appropriate therapy. The downside of that is the test for next generation sequencing takes several weeks to complete. It is costly, it costs several thousand dollars. And in the meantime, the patient has an advanced lung cancer that's progressing. And oncologists know if they gave that patient chemotherapy that 70 to 80% of them would immediately get better right? They know it's not going to cure them at all, but they know that they've got a patient that's complaining and they could start therapy this second, right? And, and, the, and the majority of patients would get an immediate benefit from that as opposed to waiting two to three weeks to figure out whether they have a target so that their tumor might be more amenable to a targeted therapy. So if we can predict that off of the biopsy sample, without the need to go to that full genomic testing, we could do a couple of things. One, the hope is that we'll be able to predict those variants just off the H&E slide at the time of diagnosis. So now I tell the oncologist, not just that I've confirmed that the patient has lung cancer, but they have this specific mutation and therefore they should be started on this targeted therapy. The hope eventually would be that we could go even beyond that and say, Yes, they would normally be a candidate for that targeted therapy, but I see other spatial features that say that targeted therapy won't work for this individual patient. So today our goal is one of our second pillars of nuclei would be enrich patient identification so that the right patients don't get missed for a potential therapy. And so the problem space that I didn't fully explain, while the guidelines would say that all patients with a lung cancer, metastatic lung cancer, should have next generation sequencing, at the last American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, data was presented that said that slightly less than 50% of patients that should be tested are in reality tested. So that's a problem. <laughs> Right? It means that we have better effective therapies and 50% of the patients aren't even being tested for it. So the hope is if we could do this at the time of diagnosis in a cheap, effective way, meaning that the oncologist has no lag period, we would tell them, 
this is a patient that has potential response to, to this targeted therapy, that that would be immediately adopted. And it also has, as we talked about earlier, the same connotation for clinical trials where enrollment might require a complex molecular test that, again, takes time. And so rather than the oncologist talking to the patient about possible clinical trial that might be available to them because it's just going to take too long and they figure the patient probably won't qualify anyhow, if they know they're pre-qualified with our assay, then the discussion will happen. So that's all about getting more effective therapies that already exist today to patients quicker and getting them a better, significantly better quality of life and also avoiding unnecessary therapies to patients that won't get a benefit. Now, the last thing that we really talked about would be, let's say that something moves forward to a companion diagnostic. And there's two ways that a companion diagnostic could happen. And for the audience, a companion diagnostic means that this is a test that needs to be performed prior to the institution of the drug therapy. So the therapy itself requires that this diagnostic test be performed and yield a positive result. The FDA would word it as the safety and efficacy of the drug is dependent on this diagnostic test. So today there's several of these diagnostic tests that are in the marketplace that generally involve standard pathology techniques. They include things like immunohistochemistry, fluorescence and cytohybridization, and molecular analysis is probably the three most common types of companion diagnostics. In the case of pharma, I think they would, they, they would prefer their companion diagnostic be something that could be executed rapidly, inexpensively, in everywhere in the world. And the, the, the diagnostic test that fits that bill the best would be our standard H&E slide or immunohistochemistry, because every lab in the world has the capability of running those tests, and they can do it in a cost-effective and a very timely manner. So as we move forward into companion diagnostics, we would love to be able to add a spatial biology component to that whereby we could augment the pathologist's interpretation of the results. So there's two levels of that companion diagnostic, a future in which AI might be the companion diagnostic, where you don't need the pathologist interpretation to determine whether the patient needs therapy or doesn't need therapy, that it would be the slide, the structuring, and the structured results would determine that therapy. I think that's a ways down the line. The more realistic approach today would be AI augmenting the pathologist's interpretation of the slide to ensure that no patient who should get this, the, the, uh, the, the drug is mixed and to ensure that patients who won't benefit, benefit from the drug receive the drug. So as you know today, companion diagnostics, while great, still don't totally identify patients who will benefit and not benefit from the drug, which is a problem. In the targeted therapy realm, 
things are a little bit easier because we say if you don't have the target, you won't benefit from the drug. If you do have the target, you might benefit from the drug. But in the world of immunotherapy, which is, the again, the most exciting area that we're at right now because we can actually extend the life and potentially even cure some patients with previously uncurable cancer, the question is a little bit more difficult because our markers today, what we use as companion diagnostics, when we say you're negative for that companion diagnostic, some of those patients still get benefit. And when we say you're positive for the companion diagnostic, many of those patients don't get any benefit. So we're in desperate need of better markers to identify these new classes of therapies that are emerging, especially the immunotherapies. Ultimately, where do you see this technology having its greatest impact? So the greatest impact for sure is going to be in the clinic, right? It's great to have all of the research and we're developing all of the studies and all of the validations and everything around it. You know, when, when I started with this, again, I started with this when I started my career 38 years ago, the vision was always to augment the pathologist, to help us see things that we couldn't see and make sure that the observations that we're making are accurate. Right. So whenever you're looking at anything, whether you're a radiologist looking at an X-ray, a pathologist looking at a slide, the one thing you want to make sure of is that you don't miss something that was diagnostic. Right. And we all we all see these things. There are unfortunately conditions where it's like, oh, it got overlooked. Yep. That tumor cell was on the slide, but it got missed. Right. We all you know, we all see examples of this that have been presented on, you know, on the news, on, you know, a variety of stories. Oh, they went back and looked and the cancer was actually there three years ago. It was just missed. So having an augmentation system that can make sure that we're at least seeing things so that we wouldn't overlook something that might be critically important. So from a quality standpoint, augmenting becomes really important. And then there's just a consistency that's a problem across medicine in general. So if you have your x-ray read by five different radiologists or your pathology slide read by five different pathologists, you don't always get exactly the same report. Hopefully the key features are all there, but there will always be some minor nuances that are there. We're hoping that with these augmented systems that we'll get everybody to a much more standardized approach make sure that things don't get overlooked, don't get missed. And that raises not just the overall quality, but it allows the clinicians that are interpreting our reports more comfort. Uh, it enables more confident medical decisions because they've got more believability in what they're reading. Ken Bloom, head of pathology for Nuclei. Ken, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.